The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, again, I just want to say thank you uh, for being uh, so gracious to us and to Pam and me and just your hospitality and your um, uh, fellowship with us has been uh, quite a, a benediction to us. There's so many ways in which we, we sense that this church and the church where we serve are, are sister churches. So uh, please, if you're ever uh, that way, uh, stop by, uh, be with us, and you're all invited to come have dinner with us at our house. So just uh, email ahead of time uh, to warn us that you're coming. I am very glad uh, to have this opportunity just to minister where Rick and Kim and, and their family serve, and uh, uh, they are great, great uh, encouragements to us and have been for many, many years, and so I'm so grateful for that you have them. And very, very blessed by the music and the worship team, so thank you guys and, and all the food and everything else. Uh, we are going to have to jog so much when we get back. I mean, we're going to have to run and run and exercise and exercise to make up for all the food we've been eating just for three days. But uh, that was part of the blessing as well. I'm very excited about the gospel message, all aspects of it. I'm, I'm so glad that the gospel message doesn't end with the account of Jesus' death on the cross, though that is obviously so important to us, the substitutionary atoning death of Christ. So, so very important. But I'm, I'm glad there's more to the gospel story than just that. I'm so glad that it doesn't even end with the account of the resurrection. That is so significant, though, that Christ was raised from the dead, and that is a great source of hope to us, no doubt. But I'm glad it doesn't end there. I'm glad it goes on to the ascension. But I'm also very, very glad that instead of it ending with the ascension, that the gospel story still goes on, in a sense, knowing that Christ continues to still minister in us and for us and through us. That's something he promises to continue doing until he comes again in power and glory someday. And as you know, we're calling the study of that this weekend the present tense ministry of Jesus. And that's the theme of the conference. I've mentioned several verses to you along the way that give us that thought. And one was Ephesians 1 verse 20. I'll read it for us again. In Ephesians 1 verse 20, here Paul comments that God raised Jesus from the dead, and then seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1 verse 20. So I'm just reviewing with you what we've already studied at this conference, that the idea of being seated is where the term session comes from, S-E-S-S-I-O-N, session. We refer to Jesus' present ministry seated at the right hand of God as the session of Jesus, that is how it's been termed throughout the years of church history. The session of Jesus means that the Lord right now is in heaven, seated in the place of supreme rule and authority and honor. And as I've explained more than once, that doesn't mean literally sitting as if on a chair or on a throne. Instead, he is very, very active, active working, settled in the sense into his present role of ministry for us, and that ministry yields four very important implications that we are looking at together in our times together. We have touched on three of them so far. The fact that Jesus is in heaven ministering in and for and through us at the right hand of God in that place of supreme honor and rule and authority, that, number one, provokes in us a pilgrim mindset. The fact that he is there is a constant reminder then of our true home. And that truth, I like to say it this way, is that magnet that draws our thoughts heavenward instead of earthward because we are just sojourners here. Scripture says we're aliens, we're strangers in this world. So all of this prompts that pilgrim mindset. Second, we studied this, that 
The reality of Jesus at the right hand of God prompts assurance of salvation due to our eternal security. Many Christians have struggled with having assurance of the security of their salvation, but this truth of Christ's present tense ministry on our behalf can help with that. It can help a Christian in times of doubt when they realize that in him we are seated there with him in the very depths of the Godhead because Christ is in God. Third, we saw this morning in the service that all of this reality about Jesus provides help for trials and temptation. We receive help. We receive encouragement and strength for the battle while we're pilgrims in this world. Whether we are facing a trial and the temptation that a trial brings or whether we're facing a temptation and the inherent trial that goes with a temptation. It's the same Greek word in in the New Testament, temptation and trial. And this help is promised to us all because Christ, who is presently at the right hand of God, is functioning there, as we saw this morning, as our high priest, our great, great high priest. Well, tonight we complete our series by looking at a fourth implication. I believe there are other implications, but these four just minister to my own heart, and so I just want to spill out of that to you this weekend. A fourth implication of Jesus' present tense ministry at the right hand of God The reality of it, number four, produces confidence about the future. It produces confidence about the future. Now, we need that because it's very easy for us, even as Christians, in this seemingly, and I emphasize that, seemingly chaotic world, to become anxious and fearful. All we have to do is read the headlines. All we have to do is Listen to the political commentators, and and we have plenty of reason in this world to not only be concerned over the state of things locally and worldwide, but there's a lot of reason, really, to be captivated by fear. And sadly, that is exactly what is happening to many Christians today as they look at what's going on in the world around us, the wars and rumors of war, the turmoil, the political turmoil the fighting, the crime, the state of the economy, so on and so on and so on. Instead of trusting the Lord, instead of trusting the truth of Scripture, our flesh, our fallen humanness that we drag with us, even though we have a new nature, an orientation in Christ, this flesh, this principle of indwelling sin that's there that Paul discusses in Romans 7, our flesh is easily tempted to think that the Christian cause is being defeated. We're about to be wiped out. The enemy is, is progressing and increasing all around us. It's so easy to fall in the trap of thinking that the church somehow is going to lose out in the end. We're kind of like Peter, you know, in Matthew 14, verse 30, that whole idea of, of him focusing on the waves and sinking That imagery there certainly applies to us in this situation. We see the waves of the headlines and we sink. We're anxious and fearful. In contrast, when we ponder the truth about who Christ is, though, and what he's doing, just to carry that imagery a little further, we walk on the water. The point at hand, then, is the significance of the present tense ministry of Jesus. The one who ponders the truth that Christ is the victorious king, that he is ruling, that he's reigning over all. And those who choose to think and act based upon that reality find the comfort, the comfort needed to persevere in what is an overwhelmingly pagan world and culture. Now, there is a passage that mentions Christ's session that I haven't referred to too much with all the ones I've given to you. Don't know that I mentioned it at all. But I'd like to spend some time tonight in this passage because it helps us understand this fourth implication. The implication that we find in Christ's present tense ministry, confidence when it comes to the future. It's Hebrews chapter 1. If you still have your Bibles marked from this morning, just go back to the left. Handful of chapters. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. God, after he spoke long ago 
to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son. Just stop for a moment. The adjective his is not really in the text. There's no definite article the either. It literally says in these last days God has spoken to us in son. He's spoken to us his final word of revelation in someone and through someone who has the quality of sonship, the position of sonship. And that makes that vehicle of revelation, his son, the one who has that position, far superior than the revelation that had preceded the revelation through Christ, all that had taken place in the Old Testament in many forms and many ways through the fathers and the prophets. This is God's final word of revelation, what he has revealed through Son, the one who has the quality of sonship. And all the writings of the New Testament that flesh out the revelation about Christ, God's final revelation. And then he begins to describe this one, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Majesty on high is a synonymous thought with heaven, God himself. Once again, it's that place of supreme rule and authority, the honored place he finished his earthly mission. He fulfilled it, making purification of sins, a one-time event at the cross, and he sat down. But here we find that idea again, the statement about Christ's session. But it's at the conclusion here of some incredible descriptions of Christ. This passage really gives us a glimpse of who Christ really is, and it does it from several perspectives it's only a couple of the statements, though, that directly relate to this fourth implication that we're discussing, but I'll go ahead and comment on several things here in this passage. We glimpse Christ here. This is an accurate view of Christ. By the way, I think this is the Christmas message. As we celebrate the baby in the manger this Christmas, think of that baby this way. This is who he really is, all the things that are said here. We glimpse Christ here from the perspective of his complete authority, number one. There's one glimpse of Christ. There's one perspective, accurate perspective of him. We're viewing him from the perspective of his complete authority. Verse 2, whom God appointed heir of all things. Let's just start with the fact that we understand God owns all things. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's. A quotation of the Old Testament in 1 Corinthians 10, 26. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. God owns everything. But our verse in Hebrews says that God the Son, as the only Son, as the sole heir, inherits everything. Now the term all things means all things. That Jesus' inheritance from the Father encompasses the entire universe, all that will ever even develop within the universe. It's all his inheritance. Everything in the created universe, everything in the world to come. It includes all thrones, all dominions, everything that is a principality or a power. Christ has inherited it. All things visible and invisible, everything is his by right, inalienable right. But notice how the writer termed it here. He declares that God the Father has appointed his son as this heir. That's a way of saying something related to authority. God has appointed him the heir. And in the Old Testament imagery, you can see that in even uh, Joseph's father giving him that coat of many colors that designated him with some authority over the other, over Joseph's brothers. And his brothers loved that idea, by the way. They were so grateful that Joseph was given that authority over them. That's what it's saying here. There's authority that Jesus has been given over everything. That's the idea contained in being appointed an heir. 
He has authority over all things, over everything. Now, you'll remember what Christ said in the Great Commission when he spoke to his, his apostles, Matthew 28, verse 18, all what has been given to me? Authority in heaven and on earth. Christ has authority over everything in heaven and on earth. That's what the Hebrews author is commenting on. So heir of all things is, a, is this title of dignity that shows that Christ, once again, has the supreme place in all the universe, and it's his rightful place. Remember that beautiful passage in Philippians chapter 2, what we call the kenosis passage? Philippians 2, 6, and 7, it says this, although he, Christ, existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, held onto. But he emptied himself. There's where the idea of the kenosis comes from. He emptied himself. Basically meaning this, he gave up the prerogatives of being God. He gave up the glory that went with being a member of the Godhead, equal with God. And he took the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. So his rightful place is that. He existed in the form of God because that's who he is, equality with God. It's his rightful authority. Moreover, this appointment to an inheritance was not temporary. And that's seen in the tense of the verb appointed in our passage. The particular kind of tense here is regarding this as something that is, is timeless in nature. The son has always been the designated heir of all things. He always will be the designated heir of all things. There was never a time when the son was not the heir. It's because of this timeless appointment that the following is going to happen in the future. Let's continue on with that familiar kenosis passage, Philippians 2 again. Here's what verses 10 and 11 say. Someday in the future, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a lot in this statement about him being the heir of all things. It's his rightful inheritance. And this is what makes this so profound. We know that Scripture teaches that God created all things through the Son, which we're going to see stated differently in just a moment. So really, the heir is also the creator. He's inheriting was he himself made? What a thought. There's a glimpse of Christ here, an accurate glimpse of Christ from that perspective of his authority. There's another perspective here through which we can view Christ. It's his role in creation. His role in creation. It says, through whom also he made the world. The through there is preserving that truth I just mentioned, that Jesus was involved in the creation of everything. John 1, verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That's talking about Christ, John 1, verse 3. Colossians 1, verse 16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So that's a basic biblical truth that Christ is the agent of creation. But here in Hebrews, verse 2, we need to understand the meaning of the term translated world, through whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Although the English word world seemingly refers to the physical universe, the specific word here is not the usual word for that. The usual word for that is cosmos. That's the term for the physical world. It's not that word here. Through Christ, God did create the cosmos. This is the word ion, A-I-O-N which literally means the ages. 
the epics of time. It refers to all the ages of time that have ever been on the timeline of history, all the ages of time that will ever unfold in the universe. Here it's saying, through Christ, all that was created. Now, it is true, Ion and Cosmos can be used interchangeably. They can be used synonymously. It's just that the term ages, Ion, captures something even more comprehensive than the physical universe. All the periods of time in history, all that has happened in the different ages of history, all that's manifested in the different ages of history, the whole created universe of space and time was formed through Jesus. This Christmas, as you celebrate the baby in the manger, think of that. This is astounding. That through Christ, God created the epics of time on the timeline, the eras of human history. In the Son, by the Son, and for the Son, all the ages of history have been planned and prepared. And that even includes the idea of how one generation moves into the next. All the transitions in time, God created all of them through Christ. All the cycles of time revolve around Jesus. Think of everything that's been discovered, all the scientific discoveries that have been made throughout the history of the human race. Any scientific discovery, if it's been a legitimate one, and I insert that because you know how that goes. Something's discovered, it says something in the newspaper, and two years later, something else is discovered and says, never mind. Okay? Salt's bad for you, salt's fine. Salt's bad for you, salt's fine. You know? I just keep a lot of it ready, so when they say it's fine, I use a lot of it. When they say it's bad, I cut back a little bit. <clears throat> but I keep it waiting for the next one. I'm just saying, any scientific discovery, if it's a legitimate one, each one is just a discovery of what Christ has already created. They're just finding it. So the more science discovers about the universe, the more marvelous is this thought that Christ is the agent through whom it was all made. And as well, every event in history, every event in your personal history, every aspect of a nation's history is somehow under the creative control of Christ who created the ages. Listen to a couple of cross-references. One from Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. It is he, God, who changes the times and the epics. He removes presidents and establishes presidents. He removes congresses and establishes congresses. I'm sorry, hang on just a moment. There's a glare. I'm sorry, he removes kings and establishes kings. I read that wrong. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It's he, God, who does that. Acts 17, verse 26. I love this passage. It's Paul's preaching in Athens at a place called Mars Hill. Had the joy of climbing up on Mars Hill. Paul's probably preaching around the bottom there of that little hill. That great sermon in that city filled with pagan idols and philosophies. He's preaching this great sermon. And listen what he says in the sermon about the nations. Acts 17, verse 26. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. The ebbing and flowing of nations, that's all under the control of Christ, of what he has created. So the Son has created not only everything in the physical world, he did that, but as well all the history that is manifested in successive time periods. We get an accurate glimpse of Christ when we view him through that perspective along with this third perspective, his manifestation of glory, verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory. The word radiance or brightness is only found here in the New Testament. It comes from a verb that can mean either to reflect brightness or to radiate brightness. It can be used either way. In other words, it can describe the shining of a brightness that's from without or something from within. An example of 
reflecting brightness would be what the moon does related to the sun's brightness. But this word can describe a shining forth of something within, inherent, like the sun. And here in Hebrews, the writer intends that idea. Jesus manifests that eternal glory, which is innately his, as one of the persons of the Trinitarian Godhead. He radiates God's glory because it's the same glory. I love that word glory. Very interesting term. It's hard to capture. It's almost indefinable, so I'll try to define it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. You could think of ideas like this. It means exalted reputation, honorable fame, majesty, beauty, magnificence, splendor, exaltation. You have to use all those and more to somehow convey to us what is really ultimately beyond our understanding. But in short, we could just say this, glory is the shining forth of intrinsic excellence. He radiates it. That's what happened at the transfiguration. Those two apostles got a little glimpse of that. It says this in Mark chapter 9, verse 3. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white. That was coming from within. The glory belonged intrinsically to the sun, so it was not just a reflection of an outside glory. He radiated a glory that was his own, glory he had in eternity past, before he came to earth. John 17, verse 5. Now, Father, he prays to the Father, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, and listen to this, with the glory which I had with you before the world ever was. It was his glory already. People viewed that glorious expression of attributes of divinity in Jesus' earthly ministry. They got a glimpse of grace. They got a glimpse of, of mercy and love and truth and so forth, which is why John writes this in John 1 verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So glory is the full manifestation of divine attributes. It's inherent and intrinsic excellence. And the point is that Jesus, the Son, possesses that, and he manifests that glory. We get an accurate view, picture of Jesus, when we glimpse him this way from that perspective, along with this fourth one. The author presents here his divine nature. It says that he is the exact representation of his nature, God's nature. This statement is similar, related to the previous one, but it actually goes beyond the former statement. Jesus is radiating God's glory because he shares God's nature. The Son is the exact representation or the express image of God's substance. He possesses the substance of God. Exact representation or express image, or you might have exact imprint. It's this Greek term, character. We get our word character from it. It's not the term icon. That's a term used in Colossians 1 verse 15. He is the image, the icon of the invisible God. That's an important word as well. But this one is a, is a very unusual word. Once again, it's a term found only here in the New Testament. Originally, it denoted an instrument that would be used to engrave something else. And then eventually, it became to be used of the, the mark itself that had been put on something. It came to be used then generally of a mark stamped on anything. And we know that in that world that day, that the image, the mark of the emperor would be on a coin. So you could look at the coin and, and get this impression, this image of the emperor and recognize the emperor. But over time, it began to be used figuratively as well. And that's the case here in Hebrews. Here the writer is saying that the Son is an exact representation of God. The Son is such a revelation of the Father that when we see Jesus, 
we see what God's substance, what his real being is. That makes sense when you think of Colossians 2 then, verse 9. In him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now the word nature is important there. It's this term that literally means, originally it was a term that meant that which stands under something. In other words, a foundation. It was a word used for the foundation of the building. And so it came to be used metaphorically to refer to the essence that is the foundational essence of something. That's the way it's used here. To the essence that is foundation to the being of God, foundational to that. So the verse is saying that Jesus was of the same and is of the same foundational essence of God. No difference can be made between the nature of the Father and the nature of the Son. We haven't seen the Father, but all that the Father is is in the Son. Christ said it that way, John 14, 9. He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You study the Son, you learn of the Father. Christ has all the things that the Father himself has. You put that previous statement and this one together, and if you take them separately, separately and together, these are valuable statements for affirming the deity of Christ then. It's an absolute deity, a timeless deity. He is eternally the Son who is the possessor of this glorious radiance and this nature. He never began to be this way. He always has been. He never ceases to be this way. But all of that really is just to lead to this fifth perspective here by which this passage views Christ. And this one connects directly with the idea then now of what Christ is doing at the right hand of God. You can view Christ accurately if you see him this way through the glimpse of this perspective, number five, his sovereign control. His sovereign control. Look at what it says. In the middle of verse three, that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, the word upholds is important for us to understand. It carries a couple of different ideas. One is the idea of sustaining something, and that fits. The other idea is the idea of carrying something along, and that fits as well. Jesus is seen as the center of the continuing stability of everything, of the entire universe. He's the sustainer of all things, but he also carries all things along. But don't misinterpret all of this. When the verse says that Christ is not only sustaining all things and carrying things all along, it doesn't mean that he's holding up things as if it's some sort of dead weight, like the world is a weight, the proverbial picture of Atlas with the world on his shoulders, kind of carrying it along as if it's a burden. That's not the idea here. Here, the idea of, is of sustaining something and carrying it along toward a goal, its destined end. He's preserving everything and governing every, everything. Christ has arranged everything. He's ordered everything. He's guiding all things along, controlling all things, sustaining all things, directing all things, commanding everything, caring for everything, all toward a goal. I like what this gentleman named Alcune said. In creating, the substances of things were produced from nothing. While in governing, governing, things that have been made from nothing are sustained so that they don't return to being nothing. What's keeping it all from returning to being nothing? Christ's sustaining power. You remove his control and we would cease to be. There's no place here for this deist idea, you know, the deist idea of a God who 
is like a watchmaker that made everything, wound it up, and just let it go and let it, lets everything run by its own mechanism. That's not the New Testament view. The New Testament view that is that God as creator and then through the Son as the agent in creation are dyna- dynamically active in this universe and in the created order. And it does say all things. Nothing is excluded from the scope of what I'm discussing here, the Son's sustaining activity. But what I want to press on is that idea that's the other half of it, carrying it along. Again, I said he's carrying it along to a goal, but think of it this way. Through Christ, God is preserving everything. He's already created all the epics of time and history, Everything in the physical world, everything on the timeline, everything about history, your history, the world's history, nation's history, he created it all, and he's carrying it all toward the predestined consummation. He's the architect of the ages, carrying all to its designated end. God has a providential purpose for the universe. And he's guaranteeing that the purpose that he decreed in his own eternal mind will be reached and nothing will stop it. And here's what's really amazing to me. How does he accomplish all this sovereign, governing, sustaining, carrying along, ordering, commanding stuff. I mean, that takes a lot of energy. He's got to be over there in that country and dealing with things there, and he's got to be over here, and he's got to be when Congress meets. He's got to be in there somehow. I mean, he's everywhere doing all this. No. Look what it says. He does everything I just said by the word of his power. You could render it this way, by his powerful word. He speaks and does all this. The word is, the term for word is rhema. It's, a, it's an order, it's a command, and it's active and powerful, dunamis, powerful. Nothing new, really. Listen to Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Listen, he spoke everything into existence. It's no big deal that he speaks and he upholds everything and sustains everything and carries it all along to his predetermined end. No big deal. All the physical laws in the universe that we study and then put into mathematical formulas and all that, those essential laws which hold it all together, they're just laws he created. He spoke into existence. And he can, if he desires, and he will, if necessary, interfere with those laws at times. He has done that before. Just look at Joshua chapter 10, when the sun stood still. I mean, people debate over that, try to figure out how that happened. It was no big deal. He just spoke and it happened. And then he spoke and released it. Mark chapter 15 at the crucifixion, darkness fell over the land, not even over the whole earth, over a particular part of the earth, and at noon, darkness fell. How did it happen? We're we're trying to figure it out. No big deal. He just spoke it, and that's why it happened. They're his laws. So just as the world was created by the power of God's word, so in the same way, by his word, all things were sustained and all things are carried to their destined end in history. Through Christ, we see what complete, sovereign authority looks like in this universe. Daniel 4, verse 35. God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the habitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
Now think about what that's saying. No one can stop God's predetermined purposes. No one can thwart that. No nation can do it. No government can do it. No person can do it. No terrorist can do it. No ideology can accomplish it. Nothing will stop what Christ is doing to carry history toward his destined end just the way God has determined it to be. I mean, either we believe in sovereignty or we don't. That's what sovereignty means. And the present participle here indicates that it's continuous work of the Son. This is going on now at the right hand of God. This is what Jesus is doing. Not only ministering to us as our great high priest, but he's speaking and sustaining everything and carrying everything along. He is busy. He's active. Listen to Colossians 1.17. In him, all things hold together. And I just punched something that lost my entire sermon on this iPad. I've only been doing this for a couple of weeks or so. I just got it back. Here's an important additional thought here. In bringing all things and persons to their proper end, he can accomplish all that not just through good people. He can work in and through the actions of both good and evil people, both good and evil governments, both good and evil nations to accomplish his ultimate purpose. He doesn't need one versus the other. I like to put it this way. Ultimately, nothing is out of control. Not from God's perspective. Nothing is happening that is not somehow related to God's eternal plan. I can't connect all the dots, literally, in this world with my BB brain that I have. We'd be God if we could connect all those dots. But it's not chaos to him. So we have a choice, you see. The choice ends up being this. We can either trust the wisdom and perspectives and interpretations of the world and the headlines and our flesh, or we can trust what Scripture says that Christ is doing. Scripture says he's the ruling Lord. Scripture says he's sovereign and in control. Scripture says he's working all things for his glory and for the good of his people to make us more like himself. Those two choices, see, are not similar. They're opposites. One leads to fretting and despair and fear and anxiety. The other leads to confidence about the future. We can either trust in the fear network on television or we can trust God's Word. If we truly believe in this universal dominion of Christ, we are then empowered in that sense to persevere in every challenge that comes along. We are encouraged regardless of the uncertainty of the earthly events. Because Christ at the right hand of God is presently upholding all things by the word of his power. What a wonderful implication this is for us as individuals. But I was thinking about something else too. This has a, an impact on our proclamation of the gospel really in our outreach and in our missions. I mean the gospel is good news. It does mean good news. So there's nothing more that someone needs to do to have the righteousness needed to stand before God and be forgiven. Christ has done it all. That's good news. In him, we can stand before God, forgiven and counted righteous. And so in evangelism and missions, that's what we're doing. We're announcing this good news. We don't need to enhance it. We don't need to make it attractive. It is attractive. This is the best news in the world. We just need to tell people about it, explain it. Don't need to add to it. Don't need to subtract from it. So how does the present tense ministry of Jesus then fit with that? 
couple of ways, one positive and one negative. On the positive side, since he is alive and well at the right hand of God, I want people to know that. This is not a dead Savior. There's plenty of people in this world who are confused and hurting and and fearful about the headlines. We need to present Christ as the one who meets their deepest needs. I understand the, the needs that are met are the benefits of the gospel, not the gospel itself, but I want them to know what the benefits are as well. In a sense, people need these carrots dangled before them because they're They're part of a spiritually hungry world, and Jesus is the one that clears up all the confusion about everything. He's the one that brings a a salve to the broken hearts that people live with. He's the one that gives people a purpose for living. Those are great benefits, and they serve as the platform for discussion, discussing the fact that Jesus meets man's greatest need then, the need for forgiveness of their sin the gospel. So it's part of our message in the in evangelism, I think, the positive side of this, but there's a negative side of it as well. It's clear from Scripture that most are going to reject the good news of the gospel. Many, most are going to spurn this offer of forgiveness, and they're going to reject and even scorn and spurn all the the benefits that we might even explain to them. And so there's something else here about this reality of Christ at the right hand of God, carrying everything toward its destined end. He's the ruling Lord, and He's the one through whom God is going to judge the world. And that's serious. That great sermon in Acts chapter 17 at Mars Hill You know what the conclusion of that sermon is? Listen to Acts 17, 30 to 31. Paul announced this. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This risen, ascended, and seated Lord is the one through whom God will judge the world and all those who have rejected this message. On one hand, there's compassion and help and love and strength from the one who's at the right hand of God to the one and for the one who repents and believes. But there is something else coming from this one at the right hand of God for those who reject him, and that is judgment. We do need to tell unbelievers about a Savior who is living and active in both sides of this. So I guess I'm just saying this weekend, this is an incredible doctrine. The exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God. It can be so easy as Christians to leave Jesus on the cross in a sense. It can be so easy to leave him in a tomb. It can even be easy to leave him in some sort of phantom-like resurrected state. We just sort of leave him in a mysterious, formless, bodiless, ascended state. I don't know what that is. Well, now we know. It's easy to skip over the mysterious, mystical, resurrected, phantom-like Jesus and talk about future judgment. But that means then it's easy to forget the ministry right now, present tense, in bodily form at the right hand of God that Jesus is performing. This is a great truth to trust in. It's a great truth to proclaim. Sadly, we don't trust Christ's sovereign control like we, like we should. If we're honest. We do fret about the future. We're, we really are like sheep. One thing I learned about sheep in studying Psalm 23 is that sheep are easily disturbed. It doesn't take much. They're all okay. They're all being shepherded. One little howl from a wild animal out there at night, and they all start to get anxious. We're like sheep. 
We do fret. We do worry. I'm so grateful then that in Christ, because of the cross, all my fretting, all my worrying, all my forgetting of Christ's present tense ministry is paid for. It's atoned for. And in him, then I find the strength as well, the grace, to once again be reoriented with confidence about the future, regardless of the fear emails I receive and the fearful headlines and everything else. I'm reoriented toward Christ, who he is and what he's doing. Let's pray. Our Father, you are a great, great God. And your Son, the Lord Jesus, is a great, great Savior and great, great, ruling, authoritative, sovereign Lord. We worship you. We praise you and give you the honor and glory that is yours. And we are so grateful that you're not only the transcendent God, but you are the imminent God who cares for sinners like us and saves people like us. But Lord, we desire that these implications be real in our experience, that we need your strength and your help to live like aliens and sojourners in this world and not get so caught up in just everything horizontal, forgetting the vertical. Help us with that, Lord. We do struggle with the thoughts of assurance. Many do, Lord, because they're looking at themselves and their own performance instead of the performance of Christ and who He is and where we are and our identity. Help us with that in those times of weakness. It's true, Lord, that we do hurt and we have pain and disappointments and discouragements. We face temptations and trials in so many ways. Help us to remember Christ, the great high priest who's interceding for us and there to help us at the throne of grace there at the right hand of God to give us grace and mercy in time of need. But Lord, help us to be those who have confidence about the future and we're thinking rightly about the Lord. And may we then be a testimony to others who do fret and do worry, a testimony to them that you are our rock, you are our refuge. And in Christ, we can rest and have peace. I pray for anyone here who has no, never really come to the end of themselves to say, I need to be saved from my sin. I am facing that eternal judgment by this risen, ascended Lord because I'm trying to live according to my own ways I'm trying to clean myself up. I'm trying to work to earn acceptance with God something. Lord, I pray that you would break through all that error and bring them to the place to be like the one who cried out simply, be merciful to me, a sinner. And save them, Lord. And set them on a path of then trusting you. In our Savior's name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.